Welcome to this first long-form edition of the Michigan Minds podcast. I'm Terry Kizdrowski, Public Engagement Communications Manager for the University of Michigan. Today, we'll be talking about a new national effort underway based at the University of Michigan to study and help prevent juvenile firearms deaths. Firearms are the second leading cause of death among children and teens in America behind only auto accidents. But while the number of young people who die each year from car and truck crashes has fallen, it stayed about the same for firearms deaths. One of the reasons is a lack of research on firearms deaths. A 1996 law, or at least its interpretation of it, has chilled research on firearms for two decades. But that's starting to change. The National Institutes of Health started to greatly increase its funding for firearms research after the 2012 Sandy Hook massacre. Two of the U of M faculty leading this national research effort, called Firearm Safety Among Children and Teens, or FACTS, are with us today. Dr. Rebecca Cunningham, an emergency room physician at Michigan Medicine, and Mark Zimmerman, professor of public health. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. First, could you tell us a little about your backgrounds and how you got involved with FACTS? Rebecca, we'll start with you. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I'm an emergency physician. And so as part of our training and, and part of the work for many years that I did both here in Ann Arbor as well as in Flint, Michigan, um, I took care of young victims and older victims as well of violence in the trauma bay um, and found myself increasingly frustrated that uh, we were taking care of um, so many children and teens who were coming in as a result of gun violence. And that, that frustration, I think, drives a lot of my work on injury prevention and focus on what we could do to uh, address this specifically. Mark? Uh, I've been working with uh, youth and positive youth development for close to 30 years, and um, one of the things that uh, kept uh, coming up was uh, violence and violence-related issues, uh, either as a victim or as a perpetrator, and uh, that work um, led us to go deeper and deeper in studying how uh, we can prevent violence and uh, uh, help kids address um, the, their experience with victimization, and then that led to um, the, uh, the, the connection to firearms. It's, it was not a very quick, it was very easy straight line from uh, violence experiences to, to firearms. So what is the ultimate goal of FACTS, and um, how do you envision it functioning as a research hub? Sure. So, uh, you know, you mentioned a little bit of that chilling effect that we had with firearm violence over the decades from the early 2000s and even, even through uh, after 2010, uh, through, through these past couple of years. And um, with that, uh, firearm research across the country almost evaporated. Uh, compared to the you know, hundreds and hundreds of scientists that have been focused on, let's say, motor vehicle crash here at UMTree at the Transportation Research Institute or at cancer institutes around the country focusing on those leading causes of death, there was virtually no researchers focused on this over the past two decades because there's no funding to do so. And without funding, researchers and scientists can't really function. And so the, when we envisioned FACTS, we were looking to put together multidisciplinary teams of researchers that we knew knew how to address problems like this around injury, um, who are focused on sociology and public health and on medicine and criminal justice and pediatrics, all the various aspects of this that have the knowledge that we're needed that when working together could apply the kind of basic science that we need for research to be able to really jumpstart this field again. Uh, and address the basic problems for it. And, and FACTS is envisioned to bring those people together um, to help generate uh, a research agenda. So after 15 years of quiescent time in the country, 
uh, on firearm research. Uh, we really even lack an agenda of exactly what the research is that's needed at this point. Uh, so FACTS for the first year spent a lot of time focusing on generating and reviewing the current what's known on the literature, uh, sorting out what the most important research questions would be for scientists to be focusing on most urgently in the next couple years. Um, and we're producing that body of work over the next couple months here. Uh, and then also working together in teams to start to put together the basic uh, research projects that would start to address some of those questions. Uh, one of the other main ways FACTS has been functioning is to uh, really excite and mobilize, again, young junior faculty and trainees around firearm research. Um, for most of my career, and certainly my early career, if you were interested in firearm violence, there was no one to study that with around the country. There was no teams to join on that science uh, and no clear mentors who could help you move that forward and certainly no funding to do that. And our team of about 25 uh, researchers across the country now is a giant hub that is attracting many trainees, postdocs, master's students, undergrad students, uh, interested future scientists who are looking to have a career and how to focus on this because it's going to take many careers worth of time really to fully address the problem. Yeah, and Mark, what kind of broke the dam with with this, I mean, there's funding available now. So what, what was it that sort of broke the dam? Well, I wouldn't say there's lots of funding available. I think there was an opportunity to uh, put together initiatives for um, identifying a, a particular field uh, going forward. And um, Rebecca and I and some other colleagues got together and said, you know, there hasn't been a lot of work done in firearms. And I think we ought to you know, try to uh, get some funding to do that because of the, the scan research that's been up, uh, that had been uh, taken place up till that point. So we sort of took a risk and said, I think let's lead this effort and let's see what happens. And, and we got funded. Um, we, um, of course, always look over our shoulder and wondered, you know, whether this would really get funded um, given the history in the last 30 years of, um, of research. But, you know, we, um, we put together, we wanted to, we wanted to s basically say, let's put some, our, uh, you know, some of the best minds around the country to, uh, identify the science that's needed to really understand firearm safety uh, and to promote firearm safety. Um, something like eight um, youth between the ages of um, one and 18 die every year. Uh, I'm sorry, every day. One in eight youth, uh, I'm sorry, what was that? One, uh, that's the statistic, I think, right? Eight, eight kids uh, between the ages of uh, one and 18 years old die of a firearm um, injury uh, every day in this in the country and we have to do better than that so um, so we we put our heads together to to help create um, both a, a training component we the, uh, we have a uh, trying to put together data so people can uh, existing data and, and growing that database um, and um, working with the the um, Institute for social research on that and uh, the training, opportunities, uh, pilot studies, as Rebecca mentioned, and then getting um, uh, several people together who are doing this around the country. And we have representatives, I think, from, you know, about 25 different states. Yeah, I, I would add to that when you ask what broke the dam a little bit. So, you know, the, the funding opportunity for us to pursue this came out in 2014, and that was, as you mentioned, after Sandy Hook. When we look at the numbers, we also know that from about 2013 to 2016, the country was feeling more firearm violence among kids. And they were feeling that in the news. It was becoming more apparent in the news, both with these sort of horrific mass shootings, as well as in everyday gun violence. We know that there were increases in gun homicide among 
adolescents and teens of up 32% during that time, increases in gun suicide 26% up from 2013 to 2016. So I think the nation was starting to swell with this understanding that this was a problem that we had uh, that wasn't going to go away. And it was had been apparent in our research for quite some time, doing work on, uh, on violence generally, uh, that one can only study the violence so much without discussing at some point what the, the mechanism is of that violence and what's actually causing the mortality, uh, which is the firearm. And, and so that really drove us to focus specifically on the firearm injury component. And can you also maybe tell us a little bit about wh what this research will focus on and what it will not focus on? Because as you know, um, firearms research uh, can and probably continues to be a bit of a political football. There's 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 Second Amendment concerns. Sure. So um, could you maybe s address some of those? Yeah, we approach this very much as an injury prevention problem. So, you know, again, uh, with a physician focus and a public health focus, you know, the focus is on decreasing injuries uh, in the same way that we decreased, want to decrease drownings, not decrease swimming pools. We want to decrease car crash, not decrease cars. We would like to decrease firearm injuries. And there's very good precedent across the injury prevention literature that we can decrease those injuries without necessarily decreasing firearms or addressing Second Amendment rights at all. We haven't really even begun to address the vast majority of safety or injury prevention research that could be done um, uh, with, with individuals and the environment and the home and, uh, and with parents and with kids that could make a big difference while still actually um, not only not uh, addressing Second Amendment rights, but perhaps even protecting them. If, if folks want to have full Second Amendment rights and want to have firearms in their home, they also don't want to have their children shot with them. And so in, the best way to have those um, rights and have those firearms in their home is to have their kids be as safe as possible. And, and that's really what we're looking at doing. Yeah, I would just add that... Um uh, there's about uh, annually we s we spend about 230 billion dollars in um, firearm related injury uh, when you consider all sorts of um, costs loss of, um, of of employment or uh, loss of uh, income all the way down to the the medical and um, uh, and, and the criminal justice uh, costs so it, it just as a just as a public health social problem in the United States, um, we would certainly want to reduce anything that would cost that, that kind of money. And um, if we could save 10%, um, that's $23 billion. That's a lot of money. So um, it's, a, it's a serious social problem in the United States. And the, the problem being um, firearm injury, and I think that's the, that's the, the real emphasis that uh, Rebecca noted here. It's not, it's not really about the, the pol politics. It's about um, the safety. Well, since there has been little research on firearms deaths among children, what, what are the knowledge gaps? Sure. So what, what <laughs> we don't know is, is miles, miles, and miles longer than what we do know. We don't know some things that may be actually somewhat shocking to the American public. For example, there aren't good counts right now on how many children or adolescents or even adults, for that matter, are shot every year in this country. Um, that data is currently uh, collected by the CDC and has a whole host of of issues related to it. So even some of the most basic epidemiological data, I mean, we know that those numbers are roughly about 12,000 children and teens, for example, a year, but it's really important. Is it 12,000 or is it 20,000 or is it 8,000? And we should be able to figure that out, especially if we're going to know how much it's impacting uh, the kids around the country. So there's basic epidemiological data like that. Um, there's uh, data that we don't know on uh, what would make it most acceptable for families, for example, to be storing their firearms safely. If we think back to 
um, to safety seats and cars in the 1960s and 70s. I think many listeners who are older will remember riding in the back seats and looking up at the stars or laying and sleeping. There was a whole host of behavioral research that was needed to understand which safe seats would be safest, which seatbelts seat would be safest, which how to get families to use them the right way, and, and then what the regulations were around that. All of that research is yet to be done in, in terms of how to have children not have access to firearms that are lethal, especially at times when they're depressed, when they're finding them with their friends inappropriately. How can we, how can we help families and houses be safer for that? All that research isn't done. Um, there's a lot of research that is unknown, for example, that we could do better on if, um, you know, after these uh, horrific mass shootings or even the not mass shootings happen in schools or communities, a lot of children other than the children that, w- that was shot are impacted by those. Uh, what are the mental health consequences of that for those kids? How do we help those kids manage those better? Um, there's a lot of research to show that there is ways that we can help the children who witness that violence do better from it, um, as well as not not feel and not have it impact the rest of their life in the same way. And, and we need to understand that better so that we can help the rest of kids as well as help the kids be safer. We don't know things like the school drills that are going on in many places around the country right now. Uh, we have no idea whether those school drills that the children are undergoing actually keep the children safer or not, if they will actually work better and have them be safer if there is an actual shooting. Um, we are starting to understand that uh, some of those drills actually cause a fair amount of mental health distress to the kids, but we don't know how much. Uh, so those are the types of things that we're starting to look at to try to understand. And these gaps, Mark, do you uh, is that going to kind of shape the research agenda here? Oh, there's no question about it. Um, most of the research, of, of, of the limited research that's been done, most of it's looked at individual level, uh, individual characteristics uh, that predict um, different outcomes relating to firearms. Uh, we haven't really looked at, as, as Rebecca points out, uh, family factors or uh, prevention strategies and, and whether or not they're effective. We haven't looked at uh, uh, community and school policies and how they might be related. Uh, we we know that being bullied is related to um, also engaging in uh, violent behavior. We haven't really looked at uh, how bullying programs work around gun violence. I also just want to say something about, um, you know, the, when we hear about the horrific uh, mass shootings, uh, they make the headlines, we pay attention for a little while, but there's the slow drip of, um, uh, of, of uh, firearm injuries and, and deaths that happen that are not part of uh, those incidents. And um, we don't really pay attention to those on a daily basis. So I think one of the things Rebecca was pointing out is like trying to understand the issues around the, uh, those, those kinds of events, the mass shooting kind of events, but also trying to understand the issues around the individual events that occur in different places. I also want to say that uh, one of the other uh, public health issues uh, and I know Rebecca will appreciate this, is the, uh, the idea of uh, tailoring interventions, that um, there's a whole movement n- in public health about not, all inter- not one intervention fits all, and uh, we don't even have any idea about any intervention working at any kind, let alone tailoring them, but uh, understanding um, the context and, and what, um, what, what behaviors we're trying to change. As, as one example, um, suicides are, are twice as like more likely in rural areas than urban areas, but homicide is, uh, the, the, statistic, the statistic is opposite. It's twice as much in, in urban areas. So, you know, that's the kind of thing where if you want to prevent a firearm violence in 
an urban setting, it might be different than what it might look like in a, in a rural setting as one example. I, I would add to Mark that I think one of the things that, you know, our group has found and has talked some about this past year is um, those firearm deaths are uh, really hitting the children and teens equally across both of those communities. And I think that's something that is only recently becoming more obvious. So children are as likely to die by firearm violence in rural America as in suburban America as in urban America. Um, and so we really find that all of our children are very much affected by this. And so all of our communities need to be uh, rallying and sorting out what to do about it. Interesting. Um, what happens if a research conclusion suggests a particular policy solution? Yeah, so research doesn't usually suggest a particular, especially injury prevention research, doesn't necessarily suggest a particularly policy solution. Um, you know, what we do is to seek uh, information on what would decrease injuries and then to provide that information broadly. I mean, I think, um, you know, again, if we look to car crash examples, you know, it was understood at some point in the 70s and 80s that if uh, people didn't speed at 85 miles an hour and the speed limit was set at a certain amount that we would have so many less people dying. And then those those changes were seen as acceptable by the American public. Um, so uh, those are the types of things that we will wind up thinking about in terms of, of what would prevent injury. Um, it's not necessarily the policy solution is left for the policymakers. But if we can find ways, for example, that it would be uh, that communities, that we can work with communities to help understand how it would be best and most acceptable for them to be storing their firearms more safely in their community and can help them implement those solutions to increase safe storage among their community. Um, that's an outcome that we could have. If that is, becomes a policy at some point, that's a, that's a separate issue. We just are, are about creating what the solutions can be. Now that's sort of a translational question, and certainly the research can... Um, help inform the, that work. That's sort of um, one of our jobs is to help translate. Um, policymakers' jobs are to take that those, those data and those that information and create a policy. The other thing I would say is that um, just because a policy is put in place doesn't mean it's effective. So then the next step would be to continue to understand, will changing this policy, will this way of translating these findings into a policy, will that make a difference? Uh, is something that we need to do. And that, that is actually an, another area of work that uh, FACS is engaged in, is um, analyzing some of the policies that have been put in place as a result of uh, some of the information that um, has been produced on the, in this topic. I, th I think also if you, have, if you start with the basic premise that we're starting with and that injury prevention in general starts with, which again is we're not you're not eliminating pools. The policy solution is never that we're going to eliminate pools in the country or that you're going to eliminate cars in the country. So if, this, if the understanding at the policy level is that um, you know, we have a, a certain amount of guns in the country and that we need to find a way to live safely with those, then the answers, the research solution answers flow from that, um, from that component. We'll take a short break, uh, but when we get back, a personal story. Hi, I'm Terry Kozdrowski, editor of the Michigan Minds podcast. I'd like to take a moment just to thank you for listening. It's listeners like you who make free podcasts like this possible. So please, if you're enjoying this, take a moment to give us a rating or leave a comment. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email me at terrykos at umich.edu. That's T-E-R-R-Y-K-O-S at umich.edu. The podcast you're listening to right now came from a listener's suggestion, so don't hesitate to share your ideas. And now, back to our conversation. Welcome back. 
Rebecca, if you don't mind, could you talk a little bit about your childhood, just so people can understand your own experiences and how they relate to this topic? Sure. I think, you know, there's a lot of violence that happens in the country that isn't talked about and a lot of stigma for violence that happens in the country. And and my family, unfortunately, when I was growing up, had a lot of family violence that was related to partner violence between my parents and couples violence. Um, and as a young child, I witnessed a lot of that. And that's not something that's talked about very much. There's a lot of stigma and I think shame about people talking about violence that happens in their households. But that type of violence needs to be discussed more because uh, it's uh, only with more discussion will we see that um, decrease and bringing out into light. In the same way we're doing with suicide right now, a lot of these deaths by suicide, and especially in rural areas, are things that cause the families a lot of shame. And so they didn't discuss them when children or teens or even adults were dying by suicide. But then you have a chilling effect, and then you don't have solutions that are brought forward for that. Um, and so, with that, with the violence in in my house uh, in the in the early 1970s, at at that time, there were no um, domestic violence shelters for women to go to in the country. People may forget that, but that's a huge change that we have in the country now that we have places for families and and parents with their children to go if they don't feel safe at home. It's a real public health success for us in the country. Um, and because we didn't have that necessarily, that was a time that my mother bought a gun thinking that it would keep her safer, perhaps. Um, we, we know that a gun in the home, especially in partner violence, doesn't statistically keep women safer, although it did give me an understanding. A lot of people carry a gun in the country uh, for protection, and I do understand the feeling that people have where they want to be protected when they feel the law is not able to protect them, and that's a lot of the reason that people in the country carry firearms is because they feel that the law is not able to protect them. And um, we can debate that sort of all day long, but I do understand at a really personal level where that feeling comes from and, and people having the need to feel to be protected. And and was this after your um, mom had taken you uh, and your families from, separated from your father, she bought a firearm? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, what were your thoughts on that at the time? When, when you were a child, did you, were you, did you feel safe? That it was there? So, you know, my mother being an amazing woman always made me feel safe. And so I think, you know, parents, our job as parents is to have their children feel safe. And um, uh, and parents go to great length and, and mothers and fathers go to great length to give that feeling of security. And uh, if, if your parents tell you that you're that, that you're safe for however they're managing to do that in your life, then, then that's something you feel. And, um, and uh, but... but uh, you know, but those experiences certainly have uh, led me to be interested in helping other families think about violence and all kinds of violence. So uh, violence that happens uh, in families with children and then also teen violence as I went on to work in the emergency departments and see kids come in uh, from all kinds of violent events, including partner violence that teenagers have with each other. Uh, and peer violence, as well as younger children experiencing violence and realizing how much of that is preventable with sort of the proper intervention and proper behavioral uh, options, as well as providing spaces for families to be safe. Uh, Mark, when you hear Rebecca's story, as a public health researcher, what, what, what comes to your mind? Well, I'm, I'm have to say that I'm lucky that I haven't had those kinds of experiences. Uh, mine are mostly from the people with whom I work. Um, a few things that, that come to mind. One is um, the uh, the issues that public health folks, uh, researchers, but that that public health researchers often have to um, uh, address or or uh, in some way uh, cope with in the work that they do, and that is breaking the myths. 
um, the myth. We were just talking about the idea that um, if you wear a seatbelt, you might not be able to get out of your car if it turns, get, you know, goes on fire in a, in a crash. You know, we had to break that myth to get people to, to wear seatbelts. And the idea that having a gun in the home is safe, um, it, you know, makes you safer is, is basically the, the, the research suggests that it actually makes you more likely to, um, to be uh, hurt by a firearm than not. So that, that's one thing that comes to mind. Another thing that comes to mind is just thinking ecologically, as Rebecca was telling her story, there were so many levels of, uh, um, of issues there. there. There's family, there's um, how that plays itself out in the, in the schoolyard, and then how that may play itself out you know, in, in terms of uh, um, fighting and bullying and how that plays itself out in mental health. Uh, and then into, you know, on and on and on. And uh, we know that victimization is related to all sorts of uh, negative outcomes uh, in uh, people, um, including um, everything from physiological change and physiological uh, out, uh, um, negative phys- physiological outcomes, uh, the, the causes of stress on, on our bodies, um, and to um, the, what happens in schools. So I, I think about all those things, and, and yet, um, when what drives a lot of my research, I, I think about the stories of Rebecca's where um, she didn't go out and uh, start shooting other people, or uh, she didn't go um, uh, you know, into uh, um, in serious depression. She was actually resilient in, in, the, in the face of all those experiences. And I think one of the things that I think about in public health is how can we help kids uh, overcome those kinds of um, uh, exposures, those kind of risk exposures that may result in sort of negative kinds of behaviors and, uh, and how do we build those uh, positive factors up? Interesting. Um, so FACTS has uh, one of the outcomes so far. You've created a website, uh, childfirearmssafety.org. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk about what this website does and how you see it evolving? Sure. So the website right now is a, has a couple different focuses. First of all, it introduces you to the team of researchers that we have around the country that are working on this. Um, the, the website also has um, what we call a data repository, which is really just a fancy name to say is a place where you can find, uh, and we're coalescing, a lot of the research that's already been done around the country and that data to make it available for other researchers so that they can start to look at it in more depth. Um, Some of the other things we have on there are also for um, physicians and for families uh, looking at how they can uh, talk to their patients around firearm violence, Um, ways that uh, they can improve their skills. This isn't a conversation that a lot of physicians have been taught to have over the past couple decades, Um, although they are taught to ask families about their water heater temperature and about whether their kids are riding bike helmets. And so we're Um, working as part of the videos and resources we have for physicians on that to help them know also to to be more comfortable with asking basic questions about how to help families store the firearms they have more safely and if they're not, where they can find resources to do that. Um, And there's, uh, what else is on there? There there are some of the resources. There'll be some publications of the work that we're doing. There'll be announcements and um, resources information about the activities of both the consortium and other people around the country doing this work. I want to just uh, point out that uh, there are other researchers and other centers around the country that are working on firearm safety uh, more generally. 
Um, we are the only ones, I think it's safe to say, we're the only ones in the country that's focused on child firearm safety, uh, which obviously involves families and involves schools and involves other um, uh, players in the whole process. But uh, we're the only ones focusing on that. So we, so we have resources. Um, if people have resources that they're uh, interested in uh, getting out there, we, we are looking at those and uh, may provide links to them. Um, so and, and we have the resources of the of the uh, consortium members. Uh, you could become a member yourself and uh, get some of these announcements and uh, get access to some of the resources that we're uh, producing. That um, well, I guess it's going to be all it's all public. Yeah. So it's, it's more public. for the announcements and an ongoing. So you, it, uh, it'd be a more um, proactive approach if you were an affiliated um, member of the consortium. You would get announcements. You would have to come to the website to get them. So I think a, a couple other things on that. Um, there is a, uh, There are some resources on there for families as well on how to get more comfortable with asking if you have a child going over to um, someone else's home or to a relative's home, um, to starting to ask about if the firearms in that home are stored safely. Um, and that's something I think people don't think is parents are starting to think a little bit more about, but actually uncles and grandfathers and other places that may not usually have kids around uh, but have firearms in their homes that need to be secured when, when they visit. So there's resources on the site for that. Um, I think, you know, as, as Mark said, the, our center is really focused on child and, and adolescent safety uh, and, and firearm safety and decreasing injury and death among that age group. And I think, you know, in 2017, we... We see the numbers continuing to rise in the country, and among high school-aged children, 14 to 17, the most likely thing that they will die from is firearm in 2017. Uh, so we certainly need a center focused on this. We need research focused specifically on how to change that fact. Uh, and we're looking at continuing our work and by the group expanding, uh, expanding the group of people that are working on this and expanding the knowledge base to really try to change that. So keep... Keep posted on that, uh, www.childfirearmsafety.org. If there is one takeaway you want people to hear about this research effort, what is it? Firearm injuries are preventable. Uh, and we're talking about gun safety. We're not talking about gun control. And you can have firearm safety, and we have uh, a tremendous ability to decrease firearm injury and death. Uh, while maintaining the rights of Americans to own and operate safely firearms. And that good science can uh, achieve those goals like it has for um, car crashes, uh, drownings, and all sorts of other activities. We need to, uh, or all sorts of other uh, injuries, and we need to um, be begin to really use our brain power and our science to uh, prevent firearm deaths and we can do better than uh, what we're doing now and um, and we have to do better than we're doing now. I, I want to throw in and you can fit this in somewhere is um, you know to decrease we've made big strides in cancer in this country as well for childhood cancer over the last 30 years so over about 10 years from 2007 to 2018 the country spent about three billion dollars <coughs> focused just on reducing pediatric death by cancer and changing the face of childhood cancer for kids in the country. We spent $15 million during that time total for firearm violence, $3 billion, $15 million. 
what we saw with that is a huge change in cancer death among kids and a big focus on that. That's the third leading cause of death for kids. The second leading cause of death being firearms. So, I mean, the research dollars, they do matter. Right, the research dollars. People think research dollars are this wonky thing, and what are you going to do with that? And is it really the same as studying, you know, biology and cells and cancer? And, um, you know, I'm here to tell you that, that decreasing, uh, finding injury prevention strategies that work for firearm safety is not more complicated than, like, decreasing death rates from leukemia. This is a completely solvable problem. It's not too complex. It's not too socially difficult. It's not anything more challenging than we've done before by putting people in space, developing the iPhone, <laughs> developing the internet, or, you know, really reducing and, and even completely curing some childhood cancers. We're getting close to discussion of a cure for HIV. The nation's scientists, when put to work, can do tremendous things, but they need millions and billions of dollars to be able to do that. And that's the kind of budgets that we allocate in this country for all the other kinds of diseases that we're really interested in decreasing. And I think, again, as we get to the place where we're realizing the kids that we have in high school are more likely to die by gun violence than by anything else. We really need to pay attention and think about, is this something that we're interested in decreasing? And if we are, how can we do that while respecting the cultural fabric of our country? I, I would also just add that um, the, it's really low-hanging fruit. Uh, there's been so little research, uh, but we do know what changes helps change behaviors. We I mentioned already the idea of tailoring. We uh, It's... Uh, it's it is really not rocket science here. There are technolo technological advances that we could make around uh, both safe storage as well as uh, the firearms themselves. Uh, there's behavioral interventions. There's work that uh, can happen in the um, in the physician's office when you go see your doctor, as as Rebecca mentioned. There's work with families. Uh, it, it, is, it isn't rocket science. It would be really easy to, to make an initial efforts. It's kind of like golf. It's pretty easy to get rid of those, you know, if you, you, know, you have a 30 handicap, you can get rid of that first 10 strokes with a little bit of practice. Then maybe the last 10 is more difficult. Well, we're not even at that first 10 yet. And it, it's really, um, it's a sin that we um, have made it such a political issue rather than sort of a medical public health issue to say, look, we're not talking about taking away rights. We're talking about making it safer, making you know, those rights safer. Uh, you no one's ever complained about, or maybe they have, I, and I don't know, but no one's really complained about putting a fence around a pool. We talked about, we're not talking about taking away pools. Um, you know, and that's a law. You have a pool, you have to put a fence around it because it's, you have to make it safer not just you, but, you know, people around you. You don't want people to wander into the pool and so forth and so on. It's really simple stuff that we can be doing um, that we're just not doing. And, and we need the data for it. And so I just want to say that if, if we thought about this as a moonshot, we could, we could do better. We could save a lot of money in our society and a, and a lot of grief. That's a good note to end it on. I'd like to thank Dr. Rebecca Cunningham and Professor Mark Zimmerman for coming in with us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Please subscribe to hear more, give us a rating to let us know what you think, and follow the conversation on social media at hashtag UMichImpact.